us causes pain. Did I say that last week? I said that sometime last week. And that's such a, um, for many people, an alarming statement to hear. Uh, because what we want most of all is to have someone who's dear to us. And then say, we made a mistake. Uh, somebody said that here once. Somebody came back to class after having been um, after having been away, she was pregnant, 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 then she wasn't here for a little while, and then she came back maybe six months later, and uh, without her, uh, the baby had been born successfully and was very well, and uh, she said, uh, she said that really this great phrase, she said, um, when, my, when I was pregnant, everybody said congratulations, and then had the baby, everybody said congratulations, great, everybody celebrated, uh, she said, and it is great. She said, but nobody told me that you do that and you mortgage away your heart for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's really true. It's not only with babies that come out from us. It's babies we adopt. It's babies that we live next door. It's people that we care. It's not babies. It's grown-ups that we care about. Whatever we care about is as vulnerable as we are. In some ways, you know, I, I think about that vulnerability I, um, I just really want to introduce to you today this book by Karen Armstrong that I'm moving along in called um, Buddha. It's mostly an historical account of what people actually do know about the Buddha's life, not just uh, the anecdotal stories that are some of them uh, a little bit stretch credulity. Um, but where actually he lived and what he's likely really to have said. And th talking particularly about uh, uh, the Buddha's early view of suffering, uh, his really realization that uh, this body, uh, never mind that uh, it in some cases lasts quite long, it's always vulnerable to... Uh, it's a living body, and things can happen to it. Uh, the Buddha and says he, the Buddha confined his researches to his own human nature, and uh, insisted that his experiences, even those of sublime peace of mind, were part of the human experience. But he, but he was saying, and this is Karen Armstrong talking in modern English, uh, that. Uh, uh, the, this is Karen Armstrong now saying there's a new orthodoxy in modern society that is sometimes called positive thinking. And so at its worst, this habit of optimism allows us to bury our heads in the sand and deny the ubiquity of pain in ourselves as, and others and to immure ourselves in a state of deliberate heartlessness to ensure our emotional survival. We, don't, we just don't look at that. Somebody said that they were, she and somebody, it sounded like, were privy to an accident almost happening that didn't happen. And in that moment, you think, oh, that could have happened. And that what could have, what could have happened to so many lives just then. And you know, every day, millions of, millions, I'm sure, of things that almost happened in the world radically change people's lives. I, th I think we talked a lot last week about the Asiana airline flight and the people in such good cheer about the new life that was going to happen, getting on that flight, who didn't get out of it. You know, we don't know. Even we make the best careful plans. The Buddha would, uh, did not have any time for burying head, what, what, he wouldn't have said burying head in the sand, for not recognizing this truth. In his view, the spiritual life cannot begin until people allow themselves to be invaded by the reality of suffering and realize how fully it permeates our whole experience. It can't begin until they feel the pain of all other beings, even those whom we do not find congenial. Uh, it's also true, says Karen Armstrong, that most of us are not prepared for the degree of the Buddha's self-abandonment. We know that egotism is a bad idea. We know that the great world traditions, not just Buddhism, urge us to transcend our selfishness. But when we seek liberation, either in, a, in either a religious or a secular guise, we really want to enhance our own self, sense of self. 
A good deal of what passes for religion, this is again Karen Armstrong saying, is often designed to prop up and endorse the ego that the founders of the faith, that the founders of the faith told us to abandon. We assume that a person like the Buddha, who has apparently, after a great struggle, vanished, all, vanquished, all selfishness will become inhuman, humorless, and grim. Yet that doesn't seem to have been true of the Buddha. The state he achieved inspired an enormous emotion in all of him, in all who met him. The constant, even relentless degree of gentleness, fairness, equanimity, impartiality, and serenity acquired by the Buddha touch a chord and resonate with some of our deepest yearnings. People were not repelled by his dispassionate calm, not daunted by his lack of preference for one thing, one person over another. Instead, they were drawn to the Buddha. He was a haven of peace in a violent world of clamorous egotism. And I wonder if we don't have, we don't have the world, the, the, real, the outside world in the time of the Buddha was different from ours now. But I wonder whether we don't have the same inside world of clamoring egotism, you know, that, that egotism clamoring is the same regardless of where you live and when you live there. And, and it always seems to me not paradoxical to uh, the idea that one could open oneself up to uh, in, gradually, at least, uh, over time to the suffering that's part of the human existence, both the suffering that happens accidentally because of uh, losses that, that don't happen to everybody because of airline crashes and car crashes and leukemias and other kinds of misfortunes that befall some people but not all people. But the things that befall all people, like they get old and they die and we lose people. And we remember them, but it's not the same as when you could phone them on the telephone. So there's, you know, there is something about that. And we manage that. And we have the, this really, I think, um, uh, lovely, I, I'm, I'm hesitating over whether I want to use the word divine, ability, mostly, to lose what's, even lose what's very dear to us and grieve it most deeply and reclaim after a while a sense of the joy and the importance to us of our lives and the fact that life makes sense to us or uh, that it becomes again dear to us. I remember thinking when my mother died, I was quite young, I was early in my, in my early 20s, and I thought, um, what if I'm ever going to laugh again? You know? Well, I go to a movie, because it didn't, you know, would I, would I ever want to do a thing like that? Look, it's a calamity. People die. They're really dear to you. And then after a while, you start to laugh and go to movies and have a life. And, and then you remember that person. I think you remember selectively. I remember decades later finding uh, 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 diaries that I'd written as a, as a preteen and as an adolescent. I've been a sort of relentless journal keeper in my life. And find all these diaries that I wrote as an adolescent where I was so peeved at my mother. <laughs> I had all kinds of terrible things to say about her. And yet I, 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 I mourned her grievously. And as years went by, she got better and better in my, in my memory. I mean, actually, I think she was really very good. But uh, it said, in, in, in Julius Caesar, it says, the evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. I actually think it's the opposite. As, as soon as the things that, as soon as they're gone, the things that annoy us, they can't annoy us anymore because they're not there. So then all we remember is what was really wonderful. You know, and, and I think we were, this is a place where I, I really think, I, want, I, want, I do want to tell you what went on and what they both taught my two teachers the other day. But when we left last week, I, we were talking about, or I was talking about, or I hope you were thinking about, uh, the, the interesting um, transformation of the culture, our culture, that seems to be going on as mindfulness, as a, a secular transplant out of Buddhism, 
has become uh, uh, it's like a stem cell transplant. They didn't take the whole of Buddhism, but they took the mindfulness out of the Buddhism and injected it, or it has become injected or infused into the greater society by John Kabat-Zinn into the medical world and um, Dan Goleman into the educational world so that I'm happy to say we have mindful schools and mindful um, mindful everything. Um, and I think, I, th I think all to the good. How could things get worse if you were paying attention to them? They'd have to get better. Uh, and one of the questions that has uh, begun to be discussed in at least in Buddhist traditional Buddhist circles is uh, first of all the, the discussion is it good is it good that this has happened which always seems to me such a ridiculous kind of a question as if if we came to the conclusion that it wasn't good we could do something about it and say whoops it's a Buddhist thing you can't have it we're taking it back zip and you know running off with it it's too late the the, the cow is out of the barn everyone is doing it and it, and uh, since um, it's 25 years at least. No, maybe about that, that John Kabat-Zinn wrote Full Catastrophe Living. And wherever you go, wherever you go, there you are. And uh, um, so that really uh, mindful, the practice of mindful, um, I noticed Jack the other day is calling it uh, warm attention or loving attention. Instead of mindfulness, how would it be? If in, mindfulness is a peculiar word anyway. Who knows what that means? You know, it's, it's not a regular word in English. It's a regular word in British English that says, mind the gap, mind the, you know, that when you get off the trains, it says, mind the gap means pay attention. So that, uh, but, and it shows up in Victorian prayer books, hymnals. Uh, let, uh, let, do you remember? Uh, let independence be our boast, ever mindful what it cost. Remember that? That's a, a kind of a, a hymn. Uh, but I, I hear that Jack, when he's teaching these days, is calling that practice of mindfulness the practice of loving attention or kind attention. It's nicer, it's a mouthful, but it's nice. And it means something, because we all know what the words kind and the word attention means. And they're both, and they're both important in that sentence, because kind alone, attention alone could be tense attention. You know, when people, are, when people are in battle situations or people are in really um, difficult, um, in the middle of someone in their family is terribly sick and you have to make medical decisions and moment to moment hanging on the results. People often have a period of um, uh, what we've started to call post-traumatic stress afterwards where their mind can't relax and they can't accidentally fall asleep. They can't fall asleep like normal people. They're falling asleep like normal. doesn't happen in that way because the mind is too alert. So it wouldn't be good to just call it heightened attention or heightened awareness. But loving awareness is a little, is smoother. means meeting each moment with attention and clarity, but warm attention and clarity so that you're not, it's not like sentry duty, which is um, a, a, a treatment instruction that Jack told me about 30 years ago or 35 when I first met him. And I was so proud of myself, paying attention to every single thing. And I was reporting that, and I said, it's like being uh, on sentry duty. There goes a thought, there goes a feeling, there goes a this. He said, no, no, no. He says, it's not like being on sentry duty, because sentries are not relaxed. So <laughs> they're on sentry duty because they're in difficult neighborhoods, you know. That, uh, that, uh, uh, and it really was a very important uh, instruction. So we talked last week about the new magazine called Mindful. And uh, I now have volume, volume one, one, two, and three. And uh, the question that I posed last week is, if you just take it out of Buddhism and you say, okay, no more teaching of the whole teachings of the Buddha, no more teaching of uh, ethics as the foundation 
for mindfulness. Just teach people to pay attention. Is that going to make a heartless kind of alert populace uh, without a soul? Or where, where is uh, where about the where's the teachings of kindness? And actually, I I think that I have already answered my own question in my mind. I'm not. This is just an opinion. Um, uh, I, I, and actually, I'll, I'll study it in the next couple of weeks because I know where to follow this up. It just came to me actually this morning when I was thinking about it at home that I, th I have always assumed that if we paid attention well enough, we'd pay attention as the Buddha is described to have done by Karen Armstrong. We'd pay attention so well that the fact of everyone carrying around a, a, a mind full of concerns about this one and grief about that one and hope about that one and really yearning for this or that would so move our hearts to even people that we don't know. Even as he say, uh, what did she say? People we do not feel congenial about, <laughs> so which is a nice way to say even the people that we don't like, that would be so moved by the fact that a person's a human being and that person like me, we would intuit that person like me must have a mind full of concerns and really uh, the, uh, one's own natural congeniality would take over. I, I really... I've really thought about it, and I am thinking about it more and more. About what are the what about the people who are uh, seem to be not wired to take pleasure in the well-being of other people? You know, most of us we help out. You know, somebody falls down in a in a street, we stop, we look, we see if someone else is calling nine one one. We help get them out of the way of trouble. We don't just walk by. Most people are moved to help out. It's certainly true that some people wreak havoc and don't seem to mind it. But I, th I think there are special circumstances. I think those are circumstances where people were either born with metabolism that didn't process stimuli in a congenial way or, or had a lot of very bad experiences. If we have been parented with any degree of warmth and kindness, we'll probably have it in us, I think. And this is why I'm going to do the research, because it really it interested me. I remember seeing charts. My friend Cliff Sarin, who's the neuroscientist who's come here and shown his slides of his charts, his charts of what happens when people practice mindfulness over some period of time, like on a one-month retreat. And at the beginning and the end of the retreat, they do um, they take tests on a computer, and the computers measure, among other things, how um, the degree of alertness and mental acuity that they have. They, they see different images, and it's how how quickly you respond to uh, dots appearing or disappearing, or different different tasks that you have to do on the computer. And the people do the tasks um, faster and more accurately at the end of a month of mindfulness practice. Their minds are more awake. They see more things in a tableau of lots of things. But they also take um, different kinds of personality tests before and after. And somehow there's, a, there's some instrument, and this is what I'm going to tell you when I see you again, that measures not only mental acuity, how much more do people see, but the level of tolerance, however they manage that in the mind, that people are less irritable at other people. They're more expansive, either by self-report or by some, by, by some instrument that they use to test it. And so that's what I think is going to be the hope of uh, of, of, of a culture that practices paying attention in this loving way more and more, that we will, as a result of being more alert, be alert in that same way that the Buddha was to, this is a difficult thing to be a human being 
and everybody's doing it. That's heroic. Uh, why would I not want to be helpful to them? So anyway, these are the first three. Uh, these are the first three. In case you want to find them on the newsstand, and I just as I was reaching over, I haven't read them all. I haven't read the first one, and I I, I see how countercultural it's going to be. First of all, it says on the top, tap into the joy of doing nothing. So uh, how mind training makes better lawyers. That's another thing. <laughs> Congressman Tim Ryan wants you to meditate, find out why. Congressman Tim Ryan was here last year and talked at Spirit Rock, and, he's, and he leads mindfulness sitting groups in the Capitol. Uh, then the one over here, sex and mindfulness. <laughs> then underneath it says, now we've got your attention. So <laughs> I won't read you that one. Because I haven't read it yet, so I don't know what it says. I'm actually not sure I want to get into it. <laughs> but I did want to tell you uh, uh, about the dialogue on Sunday and what I thought about pursuant to the dialogue. And uh, only one of us, who else was there on Sunday? Anybody else? So uh, I had a special feeling about being there on Sunday. The two people who spoke were Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein. They told a little bit of their life stories, and uh, they're a year apart in age. Joseph's a year older. They're both heading into going to be 70 in the next year or two. Uh, and both of them, when they finished college, uh, went, uh, went into the Peace Corps. And Joseph went to India, and Jack went to Thailand. And uh, sometimes when, uh, when people say, uh, it's a, they don't say it anymore, but for, there was a period of time when people said, how come all the uh, mindfulness teachers are Jews? <laughs> well, they're not all. I mean, uh, and as time goes by, we are more and more diverse, I'm happy to say. But there was a, and I, it's more or less serendipitous that the three founding teachers of uh, the Insight Meditation Society in Barry are Goldstein, Cornfield, and Salzburg. Uh, but uh, uh, Joseph and Jack uh, went to uh, went to Asia in the Peace Corps, and the thing that if there is any ethnic correlation at all. It may be just absolutely happenstance, and a lot of us aren't and weren't. It may be that that was the height of the Peace Corps after college era, and the Peace Corps was uh, uh, disproportionately Jewish. And if there's any ethnic reason for that, probably more than one, but if there's any ethnic reason for it, it's that uh, Judaism in the United States in the 20th century was, uh, had, made, uh, had, uh, had made its strongest commitment, um, had really successfully, I think, uh, moved away from uh, worshiping, um, worshiping an ancestral god to uh, making this earth a more um, divine place to live by good works, so a primary ethic. A primary ethic of Judaism has always been on a, a thing called healing the world, but it became a very prominent kind of teaching through the 20th century. So if there's an eth ethnic connection, maybe it's that. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, they, they did go, and each of them in their own way went separately and met teachers. Uh, Joseph met a man named Manindra, Manindraji, in India, who had studied with Burmese teachers, and he'd studied mindfulness. And uh, the line that he shared that uh, I've heard him tell before, uh, where he, when he met this particular teacher, he said, I'm here to study, uh, I'd like to study the mind. And Manindraji told him, if you want to study the mind, you, the best thing to do, start, best way to start would be to sit down and watch your mind. And uh, that started him on his meditation career. Jack went to Thailand 
and he met somebody who met somebody who met somebody who said um, that Ajahn Chah was a good teacher and he went and found that monastery and liked him a lot and decided to stay for two years or more actually. I think he stayed at least two years. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho, when he tells his story, says that he came there and said, I liked Ajahn Chah, so I thought, well, I'll just take robes for two years. And um, Ajahn Sumedho is now 72 and still in robes. And uh, he said, I liked it, so I didn't leave. So, and Jack became a monk. And Sharon did not become a monk, but she studied with different teachers. And uh, at some point, in 1974, they came back and founded the Insight Meditation Society. And they talked about, uh, and just in the, talk, in the course of talking about the histories, one of the interesting things that came out was uh, uh, someone asked, I guess, the question about, uh, was it always uh, smooth between the three of you or something something like that. And two things came out of that. One is Joseph was saying that over the course of time, they each of them changed because uh, we've all changed. Oh, I remember the question was that you've all studied with different teachers, some in the, the mindfulness tradition and in mindfulness tradition in uh, the lineage of Ubakin, in the, in the lineage of the Mahasi Sayadaw in the lineage of Goenkaji, in various lineages. And um, uh, Joseph said, you know, when we did, sometimes we would embrace some particular style of uh, practice very forcefully. Uh, it would become, and this is Joseph's word, he said, it would become our shtick for a while. <laughs> and uh, uh, I particularly enjoyed it since I have lived through all those shtick. So uh, over time, and he said, uh, uh, and he said, sometimes we had a little trouble because our shtick were not in synchrony with each other. People moved into different kinds of practice. But what they didn't so much enunciate clearly, but which I, I think was implicit and which I remembered is that was one of the things that really contributed to us all understanding that in talking about a contemplative practice, Maybe this is what, what I would like to say about it. Uh, when people say, what do you practice? Uh, what's your practice? I would say, and I, I really don't mean to be anything uh, other than quite straightforward about it. I'm practicing trying to keep my mind clear so I can keep my heart open. That's it. That's my practice. Towards that end, there are lots of techniques that I use either contemplative techniques or not contemplative techniques. I mean, when you think about the techniques that so many people use of volunteering, um, volunteering in, in soup kitchens, it's not a meditative technique, but it's certainly a technique to keep your heart open about compassion and what is going on in the world right down the street from us that we don't even know about. Or, uh, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I spend one afternoon a week uh, as a pink lady for a Marin General Hospital, which means riding around with a, walking around with a card of magazines to give to people in the hospital. And you remember that it's, an, it's, a, it's a great, it's with great gratitude that I remember that I can walk around today still. And some people can't. And to not mess up today's day that's filled with the joy of being able to walk around by getting caught in one of the stories that I might tell myself. So easy for the mind to get hijacked by a story. How many people, while we sat here this morning, during that half hour or so, at least for a few minutes, got their mind hijacked by a story? <laughs> can, you, can you remember what story it was hijacked by? You don't have to say what it is, no. Just want to know, do you remember which story? Everybody's got the same story. My relationship, my this, my that. Da, da, da. That's it, my relationship, my job, my health, and uh, uh, my, uh, my intimate, my children and my parents. But those are subsets of my relationship. 
Anybody had a story not about that? My work. Now. <laughs> Well, sometimes there are that. That I don't know. Well, sometimes what, sometimes it happens when uh, when uh, th this is just because I'm just thinking about Joseph because I remember somebody once asking him. They say I sit here, and all of a sudden a movie starts to roll in my mind. It's not even about me. It's just some story is happening, and it's not even here. Uh, and anybody had that? You know, it's kind of like he said. You know. He said, don't think about it. He said, figure it was something that somebody else thought that floated over and, <laughs> and is playing on your screen. So, uh, especially he said, if you suddenly think something mean or nasty or something, you could just decide that your mind didn't create that. It just floated in from somewhere, from the ether. Because it'll float out if you don't really embrace it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just what's going on in the world. You, here you are. And it's very, very interesting because you don't decide, now I'll have a daydream about my book and how it's going to end. That just starts to roll, you know. Or now I'm going to think about my health or my sister's health or this or that. Or now I'll have an opinion. I mean, one of the things that's, that's actually so helpful about that, uh, the instruction I suggested this morning, there is a body, is you see it, just stuff, stuff is happening. Was that an interesting, was that a, a helpful instruction, by the way? I think it's a little helpful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it because I, I, I know this is getting recorded and sometimes people say other people speak and they can't hear it. Was it helpful? It is helpful to me. When I do that, I find it less sleepified, soporific. That it's a bigger, it's a bigger screen of attention. This is happening, and that's happening, and this is happening, and that's happening. And then when I am trying to stay with a narrower focus of breath in and breath out and breath in and breath out, I'm much more likely to fall asleep uh, on that. Did you did you notice that this was more vivifying? Did you notice anything? Did you notice anything else? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I really related to that more because the body is always there. Yeah. I, th I think it's actually very helpful. I'm going to say that again just so it goes on the tape. That, that making that, uh, having that mental awareness it, alive, yeah. alive. It's, it's actually, first of all, because all the stuff is going on that's easier than rising, falling, uh, this and that -ing. But also, it, it, uh, on, uh, in some sense, the, the awareness that this is now alive, uh, especially in the context of so many people that we mentioned who aren't alive now, who were alive, who aren't alive now, and that this, uh, in, in a certain sense, if I'm also trying to be in contact with uh, impermanence, this, this rising, this falling, this... This movement, it's all impermanent, and so is that alive, but not yet. You know, it will at some time be not true, but it's alive, wow, you know. From, uh, one of my friends, I mention it here from time to time because it always pops into my mind at this point. One of my friends told about a person she had been in relationship with for a long time. And she said, I remember so-and-so. It was wonderful to be in relationship with that person. They got up every single morning, and they said, wow, this is the best day. And she, and she said, you know, I thought to myself, how do they know it's the best day? They just got up, you know. They don't, they don't know yet that it's the best day. But if you think about it, it's already a good day because I got up. You know, the, uh, what's the alternative, you know, that... Uh, uh, that in that book by Jill, whatever, I can't remember her name. Jill Bolte-Taylor. She got up and she was alive, but she was paralyzed. She'd had a stroke in the night. So every morning that, yeah, sometimes I get up in the morning and I still stand up easily and get out of bed. It comes in my mind, Jill Taylor, you know. 
So I didn't have a stroke last night. I mean, I don't want to see my car, but I don't think that every morning. <laughs> but, you know, if we thought about it every morning, it's a big boost to the day, alive. Wow. How about that? If any people are here who do Jewish traditional practice, they will know that when you get up in the morning and you wake up and you're aware that you're up, the very first thing you say is thank you. And there's a there's a line of liturgy that you say that. How does this sound in Hebrew? It sounds in Hebrew. I am grateful before all divinity that has once again restored my soul unto me. It's nice to remember. In light of your instructions to us today, we focus on all the parts of the body. That what's open tell me again your name Judith. Judith is reminding me that pursue, after you say that prayer about uh, thank you I, I'm, I'm up again uh, most of us what most we do we get up we stand up and in some relatively short period of space of time we go to the toilet and there's a specifically blessings that say I'm very glad that all those orifices are supposed to open when they're supposed to open are still opening. And those that are supposed to stay closed are stay closed. <laughs> and those that are doing all their things are doing all those things. And it seriously says, because if any of those orifices are supposed to stay open or closed or do their thing, stop doing it for even one hour, I wouldn't be standing here. And it's actually true, you know. And what if you got up and you said that, you know, that we don't... Anyway, the most important part of the morning on Sunday, I really want to tell you this, is someone asked, what was the hardest part in your meditation career? Because they all talked about how did you meet your teachers and different teachers. And they said, what was the most difficult point? Over my years, I've found that when I'm in conversation with someone in another discipline, and they're asking me about mindfulness and what's my practice and how is it. Oh, by the way, before I was saying my practice is keeping my mind clear so that my heart will remain, uh, my goodwill will remain available. Uh, towards which end I could be in a soup kitchen, I could be uh, whatever else, going, being a pink lady in the hospital. I could be doing my career if I were in some way ministering to people who are sick or teaching people. But the, and those would all be part of, but they all become spiritual practice. I don't say, now I'm going home to do my spiritual practice because I sit down and close my eyes. Those are all spiritual practice because they, 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 each of them clear the mind and incline it towards goodwill. If that's the, if that's the definition of spiritual practice, clears the mind and in, inclines the, the individual towards goodwill. If in addition to that, you sit down sometime in a contemplative way, and with minimal input, not doing anything. And so the joy of doing nothing. When you're doing nothing, what you are is being alert to really some profound awarenesses alive. I mean, the part of the, 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 the unspoken part of alive is it could be otherwise. But it isn't otherwise, it's this. Alive and things change and things change and things change and time passes. You don't even have to be saying that every moment. You have a direct experience of that every moment. And that things are tolerable. Here comes a really grievous thought and you feel really grieved. And you breathe and then there's another breath and another breath. See, I, th I think what, what really the edge that we, uh, that uh, the Buddha was talking about, becoming aware that there must be uh, something past the suffering of life from changing, from becoming sick or old or not in life anymore. There must be more. And I think the more is not a world where that doesn't happen, but a world where that happens and the mind is... Um, uh, spacious and uh, supple enough to say, and this, and this, and this is also happening. Um, 
It's not confined. We've, we have ways to say that in every religious practice. Um, in, uh, in God-centered religions, uh, I remember hearing as a child, uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, which sounds like it's a very sad thing. And uh, it is a very sad thing. But the giveth part is not. And I think it's a, I think it's a, uh, it's a religious form for saying things happen, things arise, and things disappear. And that's the great truth of experience. And how can it be with that with an open heart? So they said, what, what were the two most difficult periods of your meditation life? And from each of them, the reason I saved this to tell you is they each have a lesson in them. Uh, and Jack's, Jack told about the time that's maybe four years ago now, three or four years ago. Really, time goes very fast. Uh, where he suddenly took ill. This is not a secret because he, he uh, fell unconscious in the middle of teaching in Barry, Massachusetts. He was sitting up in front and fell over and unconscious. There were a hundred people sitting there. And uh, he said, uh, uh, they told him later he was unconscious for about a minute. And then he woke up and he said there were 10 or 12 physicians looking down at him. Because in these hundred people, all of those people with medical credentials came up to see what happened. And uh, then the next day it happened again. So he had... Uh, Everybody said we have to get a neurological workup, and so he went to a neurologist and had a workup, and he had a misdiagnosis. Uh, uh, the preliminary diagnosis from preliminary tests, uh, he was told that it looked like he had um, ALS, or a form of ALS, and that it came along with, um, it, then that he would rapidly lose his abilities, and that a kind of dementia was likely to come along with it. And uh, the other day he said, you know, I thought to myself, I've done all this work on getting used to dying, and I'm all right with that, but not dementia. That I'm not all right with. And he said it was a pretty bad little period of time, he said, because I was really terrified. I was really, really terrified, and then it was discovered that I don't have it. So... Then I got unterrified, but during the period that 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 sharing I think was so valuable because I think it carries in it. I, I, I don't think he planned to do it. Someone asked that question, so he answered it candidly. You can see it online if you go and do it. But I think that I think that the, what I took away from that is he can meditate for forty or fifty years. <coughs> can even develop a great deal of equanimity with a lot of things. And if things come together that are really a great shock to the mind in a terrifying way, you feel terrified and you don't rise above it. And it doesn't mean that your spiritual life is worthless and that you failed the test and that if you had really been a very good meditator, you would have said everything that arises passes away, including me. But it's clear that, and maybe some people do that, but I think that when we are shocked, the mind goes into great shock and great tension, and as adrenaline fills the body when we are really threatened with death, and we're just terrified. That's what we feel. And then it passed. That was his lesson. The lesson from Joseph was different. It was a more of a of a practice lesson for uh, what you could. Uh, the the takeaway from it. Let me see how it went. <coughs> Here. He said, I was on retreat. It was uh, 10 or 15 years ago. I was on retreat. And it was a long retreat. And I was in the middle of a two-month retreat. And I suddenly, uh, now over time, my body started to have things wrong with it. And I was very uncomfortable in my body. It's unclear what was exactly the matter with his body at the time. And clearly he's in good health now. He said, but I, I was sick in my body. And then I made a decision to follow a certain kind of action to treat the sickness. He didn't say what it was. I don't know what it was. I actually really don't know what it was. But uh, whatever I did, he said, uh, it made it much worse. 
and it was really, really very much worse. And then they said, I really felt terrible in my body, and I really felt terrible in my mind that I had made it worse, and that it had been a very stupid decision on my part. And he said, and I had the repetitive thought, that was incredibly stupid what you just did, what you did, and look what happened now. And he said, that thought would grab my mind. Of course, that's, that's, that's not what happens. It's the mind that grabs the thought. You know, the thought does not grab the mind. It completely gets it wrong to say, like, the thought has that kind of a power. The mind has that kind of a power. The mind grabs the thought and just can't put it down. So all the, you know, let go and the, the, just let go. If you want to be free, just let go. The cause of suffering is attachment. The, if you could only let go. Um, <laughs> you know, it's the, third, it's the second noble truth is the cause of suffering is attachment. The mind clutching on to something and not being able to say, it's not like that, it's like this, and letting it go. And the third, third noble truth is that peace is possible, that you can let go. And uh, the fourth noble truth, of course, is the path of practice to get and develop that kind of mind. And a long time ago, I decided that we should put in the third and a half noble truth <laughs> for, or actually it's more, more, more properly. I remember I called it the third and a half noble truth. It's even in a book like that. It should have been the two and a half. <laughs> the second and a half noble truth because in between peace is possible is peace is sometimes possible but not always sometimes he can't sometimes something grabs your mind and your mind cannot put it down at that moment you can't it's not not akin to the story that jack told hysteria takes it over you can't say all right i'm putting down this alarm alarmed is alarmed you know it's there until it's not so, he, but he said, after a while, he said, I saw that I was all right, and I was all right, and I was all right, and then here would come that thought, what a stupid thing you did, and my mind would grab it, and I'd be off of money. So he said, I developed, I, I need my hands to demonstrate it because it's a video. He said, I needed my, I, I, I developed what I have come to call my cowboy uh, response. So the cowboy responds, if you see enough old cowboy movies, which are no longer appropriate, but anyway, <laughs> cowboy, uh, he said, here comes a thought, all of a sudden arises in your mind, and you go, pow. <laughs> and he said, now I've developed the, uh, the, the corollary to that. He says, you do, pow. <laughs> said, but you just don't have anything to do with it. If here comes the thought that you know your mind is going to grab onto and shake you up forever and ever and ever. Did I do that right enough, Joe? Joe was sitting right next to me. <laughs> is that if you see the thought coming and you know that that's what's going to happen, the skillful technique is pow. Is that, and you know, when we teach mindfulness, we talk about not resisting anything, open to everything, meet every moment with warmth and compassion. It, that, I really mean it. That, it's a really good uh, instruction. Meet every moment that you can meet with warmth and compassion, with warmth and compassion. If there's something that you can't meet with warmth and compassion because you are too blown away by it, because your mind is too fatigued from struggling with it, because it's too grievous to you, or too... Uh, 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 overwhelming to you, leave it alone. There's a list of uh, that the Buddha gives in one of the in one of the suttas about what to do with people that you really don't like, people that come up in your mind and the mind is mad at them. Uh, so you meet them either in person or in your mind, and you're mad. So first to reflect on their karma about what they did so you'll have a little bit more compassion. Reflect on how uncomfortable they must be with that karma and with that mind to have caused them to, done whatever, to have done whatever they did. Bring them a present. Uh, make a blessing for them. There's a, whole, there's a list of six things that you can do to neutralize the effect that that person has in your mind. 
And I, the sixth or the seventh, the last, the ultimate thing, if all of these other things fail, says stay away from them. And I think it means stay away from them in the life and in the thought. They come up in the thought, you do pow. You, you can't deal with it. It doesn't mean you can't deal with it ever. It means you can't deal with it now. And there's a great deal of compassion in that. I know I, uh, I know someone who uh, is, a, is a physician who had a very bad, uh, a very unusual uh, and temporarily quite disabling cancer uh, as a quite a young man and was cured by it. It's a very radical cure. They got cured. And uh, 20 years has passed, and he hasn't gotten sick again. And he said, in the, in the beginning, I may have changed by now, I don't know, but in years following that, uh, since this person's field was internal medicine, they saw all kinds of sick people, said, every once in a while I see somebody for whom I think this is the diagnosis that they have. And because they work for a medical um, organization, they, they can say, you see this person, not me. He said, I decided not to see those kinds of people because it was too, not, not necessarily frightening to, to him, but um, it was hard for him to be a dispassionate person. It was hard for him not to feel unnerved himself and not to let the fact that he had intimate experience with that unnerve him in his interactions with the person that somehow somebody else who could be more equanimous with somebody else who knows that for many people there's a radical and effective treatment for that, for some people not. But that some people can hold that wisdom better at that point than other people. And it's a really, a, 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 it's a skill to say, you know, I can't do that. This I don't do. Um, was debating about the, what came up in my mind. Did I want to tell it? Did I not? I, I think it's fine. Um, uh, uh, we, we'll meet this year, by the way, on 9-11. It just happens that 9-11 is a Wednesday. And it just happens that I'll be here. I know that from making the schedule. Uh, in uh, 2001, 9-11 um, happened on a Tuesday, and we were here on Wednesday. And um, we'll talk about what we did. I will probably on that day do refuges and precepts because that's what we did on that day. But um, a few days later, after that, uh, I was supposed to go to New York City to do something or other. I was, I was supposed to be teaching something in New York, so maybe flying that weekend to go. And uh, the next day, or the next day after that, uh, I, I developed a virus in my eyes. I, and uh, I, I, clearly I got better, but I had a viral infection in my eyes, which i would never had before anyway. I did, and sometimes people have that. Uh, and my doctor said, uh, I said, I'm going to New York tomorrow or in two days or something, said, you can't go. This is very infectious, and you can't get on an airplane with it. It's not right to do that. You have to get all better and then wait a week or so, and then you could go. But that was after when I was supposed to be there and teaching. And I was on the phone talking to my friend Jack and my teacher and my confidant all these many years. And uh, I said, you know, I, I, how are you? I said, well, I have this uh, eye infection. And it's viral, and I can't. I have to stay home because I'm not supposed to be like in a public place or in a supermarket or in an airplane. I'll get better in a few days. And I said, but I was supposed to fly to New York, and uh, I was. Uh, I thought I, I thought it would be good to go. He said it would be hard to go. I said I thought it'd be good to go. I said because you know I'm watching on TV what's happening there, and there are so many places of of really people first responders still really taking care of the people who 
were immediately affected and then the families of the people who were immediately affected. And I said, I just feel like it would be good in New York if at this time the people are so stirred up. It's good to have people come who can be very soothing in a really uh, chaotic situation like that. And he said, he said, it's true. He said, it's really too bad that actually you're not really one of those people. Which sounds really like it's, a, I, I, that's why I was thinking about, is it nice to tell you or not? Uh, but I decided I would tell you because I, I think he's actually right. You know? Uh, I'm, uh, uh, what would I actually do? I'm, I'm not that, I'm old, so I'm not that strong. Uh, I can't do first-hand first aid. I don't have medical skills. Um, I don't know. I, th I think, actually, I could be in difficult circumstances and hold it together, but I don't know. More now than 11 years ago, or 12 or 13, 13 years ago now. I, maybe I could do it now. Maybe he'd say something different now. But maybe I told it to you because I thought to myself at the time, you know, he's right. And uh, maybe I should be embarrassed about that. Spiritual teacher should be able to do... Who knows what? But that's the same as spiritual teacher. You shouldn't get hysterical about a diagnosis. Why not? Shouldn't be overwhelmed by chaos. You know, we all have different stuff. I know a woman, I was about to say a young woman, but I know her so long now, she's not such a young woman. <laughs> who's a, she's a nurse at San Francisco General for many years who works in, the, in particularly in trauma units, and particularly like in burn units, because she said, you know, I was born with, uh, she said, I have this very good ability to not be grossed out by stuff. And some people have that, and some people don't. And uh, is, that, is that true? I mean, you know where you are. I don't want to say who has, who doesn't have. But, huh? I don't know. I yes, think. Yes, I know it's true. I've done it. Okay. <laughs> you have to really want to. Maybe you have to really want to. I'm sure everyone who does, I, I, everybody who does nurses training has to learn not to be grossed out or how to hold it in if you are grossed out. But, uh, but I think some people have a very, very big ability to do that, and other people, ah, it's not that thing. But to be able to say that things are, you know, I can do that or I can't do that, and have it not be spiritually significant. I mean, I can say, I, I really can't carry a tune very well, but I don't feel embarrassed about that. You know, I have friends who are singers, and I can't carry a tune, but it's not, like, embarrassing. I remember numbers phenomenally well. I don't recognize faces very well and, until I know people very well. And then I re recognize it. It's just it's the way the, the neurology works. I remember poetry very well. I can remember long poems that I memorized in my life now. Uh, my son teases me about how many jingles I know from the 40s and the 50s. He says, when you die, you'll be probably mumbling those old jingles. <laughs> I said, no, I think I'm worse. I'm going to be reciting the Gettysburg Address. But. I actually hope that I'm doing something like Refuges and Precepts, but, uh, uh, or the Shema, and, <laughs> which I probably will do too. I need a big lead-up, you know. <laughs> no, not such a big lead-up. You're just supposed to say that with your last breath, so you can do that with one breath. I'm kind of working on that Maureen, I think it was Maureen Stewart who died and said, is said to have said, thank you very much, I have no complaints, as her last breath. And then you maybe say the Shema after that. Uh, I'll have to work on it. I hope not too soon. Um, so one of the things, I, I'm going to leave it because I had it to talk about, we don't have time, but we'll come, we'll come back to it when I'm back. Um, that uh, I, the, still up in, my, in the air, in my juggling, is how is it we come together and uh, we, we work on paying attention to what's going on in there, just as Menindra told, uh, told Joseph, you sit down, you pay attention to your mind. 
and pay attention, we see different habits of the mind, what it gets caught by, what it doesn't get caught by. I think the main habit that I am looking at is the habit of getting caught. You know, if there's anything that it gets caught, uh, that, uh, I mean, you're not supposed to sit down and not have anything arise in the mind. It's not about being mindless. And it's not about, and certainly not about not making decisions. Um, and for a long time, people had the idea that there was something anti-thinking about meditating, like thinking was a mistake. Like every time a thought arose, thinking, pow, thought, pow. I mean, how will we not have thoughts? How will I remember who I am and what house to go home to? And who is my family? And what do I hope? And pay my income taxes. You're supposed to think and discriminate. It's just not supposed to tie the mind in a knot. And I think that's what I really want paying attention to. What keeps my mind tied in a knot? When it's not tied in a knot, this is not true for me alone, this is true for all of us. Mind is not tied in a knot. We are, most of us, naturally good-willed. So we are restoring goodwill. I told somebody yesterday, I think of that as my major practice throughout the day. You can get a little annoyed at somebody. I'm trying to think of some example to use other than the DMV. But, <laughs> but you know, it's one that everybody recognizes. I have actually a lot of compassion for the people who work there. Because when people come in, they already are primed not to like the person who works there. Maybe the DMV should surprise everybody by having like a training day. And then from there on, everybody in the DMV is fabulous. And people start to write articles about the great uplifting time they had in the DMV. And, you know, this starts to be a desirable place to go. That would be... I could see a good in-house training there for... But, uh, because mostly when you go there, you're already girding your mental loins for going in there. You think, oh, I'm going in the DMV. And it probably gets worse because of that. How not to, how not to expect that and how to condition your mind so it's meeting the day joyfully. And, un and undoing, as you go along, oh, here comes so-and-so. Okay, wait a minute. That was a moment where I was really deflating my own mind before and said, well, so-and-so is still alive. Think of that. You know? There's another way. It, it, not for the, on be, it is on behalf of the other person, but not on behalf of the other person. On behalf of my own mind, not being really continually dusting it up in a dust storm. Every negativity makes a dust storm in the mind. Every lust makes a dust storm in the mind. And I think that in the course of a day, we could sit. When I sit every day in the morning, which I try to do, it's on behalf of not having too many dust storms in the day. It's not just that I'm sitting and finish, finish with that. I mean, <laughs> to overuse the analogy, it's like putting on the um, <laughs> strapping on the gun holster so that you can <laughs> catch the negativities on the fly. Probably too much guns mentioning. I don't know when I've mentioned the word gun so many times in one morning. So I know I'm not here next week and the week after and the week after. So I am here on the week after, which, which is the 28th of August. Today is the first meeting of the Handicrafts Meditation Group. Anybody is coming this afternoon? One, two, three, four. Phyllis is coming. Phyllis is coming. Anybody has an embroidery, a needlepoint, or something that they would like to sit quietly for an hour doing? This is not restricted to women, by the way. It's restricted to handcrafts. And that you can do quietly and without thinking about it. It's not a craft class. No one's teaching anybody. Everybody is clicking away on their own for two hours. And the first hour is silent, and the second hour we'll talk to each other, and we'll figure it out this afternoon. So that's happening today, and it is happening four weeks from today. And uh, in between is Donald, I think, isn't it? Oh, and Tony. It might be Tony all the time. One Donald and two Tonys. Tony is great. But yeah. What time this afternoon? Uh, 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.30. 1.
may we all take this take with us into the world a renewed um, excitement and exuberance for keeping our own minds uh, buoyant and light and goodwilled on our own behalf and on behalf of all beings. Uh, and may each, as, just as we create our karma each moment, um, giving birth to the next moment of a, a moment of joy and goodwill, may we all continue to build that karmic momentum in, on behalf of a world full of goodwill. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.